0: We're in Colossians. Uh, You can flip there if you want, Colossians 2. A bunch of years ago, 12, 13, uh, my father in law got an entire dump truck load of fertilizer. So he said, Hey, if you want some for your garden, come on down. So I hopped in my truck with Elijah, who was probably three years old at the time. And we went down to my father in law's house and we pull up and, you know, a dump truck load of fertilizer, also known as cow manure is a big mound. So I hop out, grab a shovel. Elijah hops out, three years old. He gets out and he just runs over and starts to climb up this mountain. And so I'm watching him. And I said, hey, buddy. I said, hey, buddy, that's, that's cow manure. And he's like halfway up it and kind of looks at me and goes, huh? I said, it's cow poop, buddy. He looked at me, looks at his hands. Cow poop? I said, yeah, it's cow poop. Climbs off the mountain, looks at it. He says, Dad, this is cow poop? I said, Yes, it's cow poop. He said, Dad, we're gonna take the cow poop and put it in our garden? I said, Yes, we're gonna take the cow poop and put it in our garden. He said, Then we're gonna plant our veggies in the cow poop? I said, Yes, then we're gonna plant our veggies in the cow poop. He said, Then we're gonna eat the veggies? I said, Yep, then we're gonna eat the veggies. He said, dad, that's gross. <laughs> he has not eaten a vegetable since. <laughs> Curing veganism, one kid at a time, right? So last week I said, two of the main jobs of a pastor, and Paul's showing us this in Colossians 2, is to guard and to garden. And so last week we saw Paul guarding us. He warns us about four things, look out for philosophy Look out for empty deceit. Look out for human traditions and look out for the elemental spirits of the world. So he's guarded, he's warned. And now he's just going to start heaping on the fertilizer of God's truth. Like just pour it in. Here's what you need. I'm going to guard it now. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Let's jump in. Colossians chapter two, verse nine. For in him, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. How's that work? I don't know. Paul, who's a lot smarter than me, in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, great is this mystery that God was manifest in the flesh. It's a mystery, but it's true. The fullness of God dwelling bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, it goes on to say. Number one, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are in him. You want a really good Bible study. In the New Testament, look up every place that it says in him and then read the promises and the truths that are given guaranteed to every single one of us for one reason, because we are in him. This is one of the most basic truths you got to get in Christianity. It's also a place where the enemy attacks us more than anything else. So let me try to explain it like this. Where are you right now? You're in the Edgewater Sanctuary. We can have a debate about whether you should be here or shouldn't be here or deserve to be here or don't deserve to be here. We can talk about that all day long. Does that change where you're at? No, you're still in the sanctuary. None of that changes it. Here is a tactic of the enemy. When it comes to us, he wants to attack us and say that we don't deserve the grace that we've been given. We don't deserve the promises. We don't deserve any of those truths. You've been too lazy. You haven't read enough. You did this. You didn't do that. Whatever it is. Would any of that change your position right now? No, you're still in the sanctuary. All right, that's the New Testament truth. When you are in Christ, none of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter what you are, what you were, or what you are doing, what you haven't done. None of that matters. You are positionally in Jesus Christ because of grace, And you put your faith in him and the finished work of the cross and your position is based on that. And the promises are based on your position. Okay? It's a guarantee. You are in him by simple faith in the finished work of the cross. And we should have known this was coming because it's hinted at in the Old Testament. It's not about me. It's about something else. Some other work has to happen for me to be positionally where I am. So in the Old Testament, if you sinned, what did you have to do? Make a sacrifice, right? That's if you believed in the God of the Old Testament. If I sinned, if I blew it, the next morning I'm grabbing a bull or a goat or a lamb or a pigeon and I grab them and I start walking to the temple. So all my neighbors see that and know I blew it. I heard that fact last night. Aha, Matt sinned last night. And you walk to the temple, you get in line. When you finally make it up there, what does the priest do? Does the priest interrogate me? Talk to me? Figure out how good I am or how bad I am? No, what does the priest do? It inspects my sacrifice. If my lamb is acceptable, if my bull is acceptable, if the goat is acceptable, then my sins are forgiven. I don't come into the equation. I'm not the one that's inspected. The lamb is. See, that's the New Testament truth of you and I being in him. And the enemy wants to take that away from us because of something we did or did not do. You just keep saying, no, I'm in him. And the lamb is perfect and acceptable. And my sins have been forgiven. And you can't pull me out of my position because I'm in Christ by grace through faith, period. Brilliant. Every time you see an in him, you circle it. And you realize these are truths, period. Because of where I'm at positionally. And so the rest of this is true of you, regardless of how good you are or bad you are, regardless of how much of the Bible you have read or have not read. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're positionally in him and the rest of these are true about you. So number one, you have been filled. Is that past tense, present tense or future tense? not a trick question, past tense, right? Have been, it's already done. You have been filled, past tense. I think a lot of times we're searching for something, not realizing it's already been done. So let me give you another text that amplifies this. It's Second Peter chapter 1, verse three. His divine power... Who's power? My willpower? My gutting it up? My doing it? Uh Uh-uh. His divine power has, past tense, granted to us some things, most things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What did that text just say? You have already been given everything that you need for life and for godliness. How huge is that? How much of Christianity is thinking that we're missing something and we need to go search and find it? Here's what it's like. Anyone here seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz? Read the book, whoever it is. You know the story. Dorothy sucked up in a tornado, house lands on the wicked witch of the east. She gets out. Fairy godmother shows up, says, hey, yeah, you killed this witch. You can take her shoes. Shoes are put on Dorothy's feet. And for the next two hours, she goes through absolute misery, trying to find uh, the wizard along the golden or the yellow brick path that's going to lead her to the solution she needs. Miserable, right? Has these kind of moron people that join with her, right? They're idiots are correct. You know, there's just no heart, you know, problems. Her dog gets kidnapped by flying monkeys. It's just brutal and miserable. She gets to the wizard. She finally follows the path of enlightenment, gets to the wizard. Turns out he's a fraud, right? He's just a little dude behind a booth pulling levers. He's an absolute fraud. And so the fairy godmother shows up again. And what does she say? Oh, you want to go home? Oh, all you need to do is click your shoes together and say, I want to go home. Remember that? The first time I saw that as a kid, I was so mad. I'm like, you are a wicked stepmother, not a fairy godmother. How evil to make her go through all this misery when at the very beginning, she had everything she needed. And how much of our Christian life is that? I found the yellow brick road. I got to go talk to this wizard. If only I could meet with him. If only I could meet with her. And the whole time, God's saying, you have been filled. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You have talents. Use them. They'll grow and they're increase. No doubt. It's like a plant. It's been, the seed's all there. Yes, it needs some water. Totally. It needs some fertilizer, but it's all there already. Let it grow. Let it grow. You have been filled. You're not looking for something. You're not trying to get out there and get more of something. You have been filled because you're in Christ. Number two. Verse 11, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You've been circumcised. Everybody know what that is? If you don't, feel free to ask anybody but me after service, right? Here's what it really stood for. Circumcision was a mark that identified you as a certain kind of crew. This is our crew. It's really a brand. Here's a brand. We're stamping you with this brand so it identifies you as a certain kind of group, religious group. Do we have marks like that today? Outward marks that kind of stamp you as a group? Sure. If after church today, you're driving home and you see two young men riding on bicycles and black pants and a white shirt and a tie with a little badge on it. What do you know about them? Right? They're gonna be really nice. And they're gonna be Latter-day Saints because it's a badge that just stamps. You can tell them right away, right? If you were in a different area of our country and you saw someone with just a chin beard and a top hat and dressed like the 1800s in a buggy, what would you know Instantly. Other well, Amish, right? Because there's these outward marks that show, hey, we're part of this crew. We've got a brand. We're stamped with this brand. This identifies us. So here's what was happening 2,000 years ago in the churches of this area. And it wasn't just at Colossae. It was other churches as well. There's a group of people that would come in after people got saved, positionally placed into Christ, and they'd say this, hey, Jesus is a great starting point. But if you're really serious about your faith, then we got the next step for you. And so these people that love Jesus and wanted to grow and want, they say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? What do I need to do? I'm serious about Jesus. What's the next step? And they would say, drop your drawers. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> this doesn't sound right. If you're gonna be serious, you gotta be in pain. Can I just run a marathon? Nope. Can I just like read through the Bible in a year? Nope. Can I feed the poor? Nope drop your drawers. So it was moving rapidly throughout these churches. And it was doing a disservice to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what was happening. So here's what Paul says, talking about the same thing in the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians really centers in on this problem, that you need something more than Jesus. Jesus isn't sufficient. You need something else. And so Paul, in talking about circumcision, he says this in chapter five, verse 11 and 12. Let me read it for you. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, if I'm saying in order to be saved, in order to be serious about Jesus, you need to be circumcised. If I was doing that, Paul says, then why am I still being persecuted by those that have that line? He said, I'm not doing it. That's why I'm being persecuted. In that case, if I preached, yeah, Jesus is a good starting point, but you also got to be circumcised. This is what Paul says. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What's the offense of the cross? You can't do anything to deserve the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. All you can do is bring your sins and your brokenness to the level ground of the cross and fall on your face. You can't do anything. That's the offense of the cross. It's not, well, I'll do this little bit of pain and that'll prove. No, nope. you're taking away it. So then Paul says this about the people that were preaching. Hey, you gotta be circumcised too. He says this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You know what that means? The knife slips. That's what it means, right? You won't see that on a flannel graph in the nursery. <laughs> Praise God, Right? That's how serious Paul is. Because the moment you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are doing a disservice to his work on the cross. Jesus says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass by me. If circumcision would do it, if some act could do it, if you could just if, if there was any other way, any mark, any brand that could do it, let this cup pass by me. But there wasn't. You can't take it away. Well then, Matt, how are we marked? How do people know that we're disciples of Jesus Christ? We have one mark. You know what it is? Jesus says, by this shall all men know you are my disciples. Not by facial hair, not by clothes that we wear, not by some mark on our body, one mark. By your love, one for another. That's the mark. That all of a sudden inside of us comes this fruit from God's spirit, joy and peace. We like people that we didn't used to like. We forgive them all the marks of love. That's that's it. That we have a spirit that speaks to us. Romans 8, Galatians 4, and tells us that we are his kids. We have the still small voice that speaks to us and instructs us to go do things. And when we do them, man, amazing things happen. Whoa, I can't believe that. One in a billion odds. Those are the marks, not outward, inward, Fruit, love, much better. That's the circumcision without hands. That's the work of Christ in our life. And it's beautiful and brilliant. And you have been, not looking for it, it's already happened to you. Walk in it, learn of it, grow in it. Thirdly, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism. Could have just done the whole summer on this one. Let me quickly say when it comes to water baptism, there are two errors that I think are made in the church. First error is this. It's called baptismal regeneration. That means this. You are not saved until you get baptized. And that's, Not very common in our area. It's common in certain denominations. And for a while, I was going to India a lot. And it's big in India. So on my fourth trip, I went over there and there was this church that was having this kind of tension because there was this man that got really sick. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ. But his widow, or well, his wife at that time, his wife was told, hey, if he does not get baptized, he's not saved. So she's like, well, he has to get baptized. So they put him on this cot, carried him out when he's really sick to some water, really cold. And then they put him under the water. When they put him under the water, something happened. His heart stopped, whatever it was, and he came out and he was dead. So then the church said, well, if the Bible is, according to our interpretation, baptism is you go in, you come out alive. He went in the water and did not come out alive. He was never actually baptized. He's in hell. So you got this woman, this widow now, who's like, what? My husband, I'm not going to, like, she's tormented by this. So I had the chance to be like, oh, time out. That's wrong. I so said, look at this story. Maybe the first convert in scripture, Jesus crucified with two thieves, one on each side. Right? One's getting mad at Jesus. Come on, save us, save us, save us. The other thief responds, what are you talking about? We deserve to be crucified. We deserve to die. We know we're sinful. This guy hasn't done anything. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does what Jesus reply to that thief? Sorry, you got to be baptized, man. I know. Tough luck. Just the way the dice rolls. No, what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. No way. So that's the one error, this kind of baptismal regeneration, but that's not the error that was happening in Colossae. The error that was happening in Colossae was this. It was baptismal graduation. That there was these cults there. They're called the mystery, Eleusinian cults. And what it was, was you would engage in a cult and it would be three, four five years of really hard work, memorizing stuff, knowing a bunch of stuff, being tested, difficulty, pain, like a lot of it had to do with pain, like cutting yourself, all this stuff you'd go through for three years. And if you did it right, at the end of it, you'd have a graduation baptism. And everyone there would be like, you are awesome. You worked really hard. You're amazing. Look at how much you learned. Look how much you know. Hallelujah, Matt would be the whole point of that baptism because it'd be a graduation for how hard you worked. It was this outward kind of show of, look how great I am. I graduated. Almost virtue signaling. So the book of Colossians is attacking that whole idea that you're baptized, you're boasting. No, it's you get baptized with him. It's not about me. It's about him. That baptism is by faith in the powerful working of God has nothing to do with me. It's not about me graduating or me knowing a set of rules or a set of something. It's about my unification with Christ. It's publicly declaring to the world, to all of creation, I belong to Jesus Christ. What has taken place in my heart, I'm now demonstrating publicly the baptism of God's spirit placing me positionally in Christ. Now I'm demonstrating that to the entire world. So when I baptize kids, I always tell them, it's like this. If you're out here, you're you're practicing. You're on the soccer team or whatever it is. And there's a bunch of you out practicing and you're just wearing whatever t-shirt you're wearing. No one knows what team you're on until you put on the jersey. And then it's, oh, they're on that team. I said, that's baptism. Oh, you can know you're on what team you're on, no doubt. But now when you put on the jersey, when you get baptized, it lets the entire world know, all of creation, seed and unseen, I belong to team Jesus. That's my team. And it says that only happens by faith. What saddens me today is a lot of baptisms are by works. Do all these checklists. And if you do all these checklists right, then we'll let you be baptized or through manipulation. So there was this gigantic, it still exists. It's a gigantic church on the East Coast. And they'll do every once in a while like a big baptism service where they'll invite anyone in the service to get baptized. And they had this memo that got leaked out from the leadership of that church because this is what they did. They planted 20 people in this big 3,000 seat auditorium. And then as the preacher's given his thing, Come be baptized. I know there's one more out there. I know God's moving on people's spirit. Just all that kind of manipulation. When that was all happened, one more hand, right? You know, all that stuff. Then a guy over here would pop up in the back and he'd be like, okay, okay. And he'd start walking down, but he has a plan. And then it would happen through. And they said, by doing that, we get more people to come forward. That's manipulation. That's ultimately not faith. That's me using the power of persuasion to get more people to come forward because it looks good on my Instagram account. We had 400 people baptized. Well, I'm not sure what happened and I'm not sure if that's real or not, but man, that makes me afraid because I think too often when you manipulate people into doing things, you actually inoculate them against the truth of it. And I can't tell you, i would probably talk, do, talk to 100 people that said, well, I was baptized here or baptized there. And you know what? It didn't work. Or I tried Jesus and it didn't work. No, you tried something. You tried a man. You tried manipulation. That's what you tried. You don't try Jesus and it doesn't work. That'd be like saying, I tried skydiving and it didn't work. No, it worked. <laughs> now you dove from the sky and something happened at the end. Right? It's like that. It's just ridiculous. But when there's manipulation and we use emotional things to get people to respond, it's not trusting faith. It's not trusting the power of God. We got to trust the power of God. Right? Well, man, who does it, what does it matter? I think it matters. Some of the most ardent haters of Christianity spent time in church. Karl Marx spent time in church. Richard Dawkins, he's called the high priest of atheism today, grew up in church. Now he writes books like The God Delusion and The Devil's Chaplain, right? He's anti- Jesus, anti-church, but grew up in it, prayed the prayer, did it all, inoculated against him because it wasn't done by faith in the powerful working of God. We gotta be careful, Charles Darwin. You just, the list goes on and on and on, okay? We gotta be careful. So it's not about a catechism, not about work. It's not about ma- manipulation. It is God moves on someone's heart and they say, today's my day. I want to baptize baptized. So the way we do baptism at Edgewater is that we just say, hey, if today is your day, if God is working on your heart, and I have a lot of people saying, Matt, I came from a church. If you just do this, if you just have everybody close their eyes and maybe raise a hand, I say, I can't do any of that because that's me manipulating people into doing something. So we believe at Edgewater, we give God space every single Sunday. If today is your day, if God's spirit has been working on you and moving you and speaking to you, then we want to give space for God's spirit to draw you and for you to make the public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. What has happened in the spirit realm, being plunged by his spirit in Christ positionally, dying to yourself and being resurrected in Jesus. If you're doing that publicly, man, we're going to give you space to do that. But no manipulation, no arm wrangling, no hand raising. It's just do it as God leads you. Baptism by faith and the power of Jesus Christ. Number four, you've been made alive. Check this out. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You Believe on Jesus, you're made alive. What does that mean? What does alive mean? Does it mean I have a pulse? Does it mean I'm breathing, respiratory? Does it mean, hey, I'm having fun, right? Or that's life, man. Life, I'm living life to the full, right? What does it mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about life and death? Here's what I believe it means. Scripturally, life in the Bible is about existing in God's presence and death is about separation from his presence. So you go to the very first time death is talked about. It's Genesis chapter two, where God looks at Adam and Eve and says, hey, there's a really bad tree in there. If you eat of that tree, the day that you eat of it, you shall die. What happened to them when they ate of that tree? Did their heart stop and they fall over dead? No, they lived about 900 more years. Had babies and lots of babies and grandbabies and great grandbabies, populated the earth. What happened to them the day they ate of it. They were kicked out of the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden, where God's presence met with them and walked with them. And they had to move eastward. And every time in the Old Testament, you see people moving east, it's always negative. It's always bad. It's always away from God because Babylon was east. So what happened that day? Their sin, it separated them from God. So death in scripture is being away from God's presence. Life in scripture is being in God's presence. And what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ is this. Jesus put it like this. It's John 17, three. This is eternal life, age abiding life, to know the father and to know me. And that word know there is that intimate knowledge of being with somebody and knowing them well, that's life. When you believe in Jesus, now your sins that separate you, all the things that make God distance from you, they're taken out of the way and you can be in God's presence. That we are now called the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's actual tangible presence comes in and inhabits us. That's life. That's life. It's why we can come boldly before his throne in our time of need. Why? Because We can be in his presence now. We're alive. Brilliant. Well, how does that happen? I know I'm sinful. I know I'm bad. How can I be in God's presence? Last point. Check this out. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this Christus Victor. He said, it's the most important thing you need to know about what happened on the cross for us. Jesus is victorious. He defeats powers, rulers, he forgives you and me of our trespasses. He cancels this record of debt that the enemy always wants to remind us of, just cancels it, triumphs over the enemy, and puts them to an open shame. It's brilliant. And last week we looked at what rulers and authorities are they're the demonic powers, it's the elemental spirits, it's the bad dudes. So on the cross, Jesus says something that causes certain people to go in in different directions on what it meant. So on the cross, Jesus quotes the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. And it's the first verse. He says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people take that meaning God turned his back on Jesus on the cross. What does it mean? If you go to the first century in rabbinical kind of teachings, here's what would happen. They had a very different Bible than us. We can now say, "Hey, turn with me to 2 Kings 5:25." That's not the Bible they had. They had these scrolls that would be many books actually sewn together. And the way that a rabbi would instruct his students to turn to a certain text was not 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 32. It would be the first two words of the paragraph That was it. And that rabbi expected his students to be able to find the passage he was talking about. Well, how in the world could they do that? Because they had it memorized. Very different than us. They memorized the Bible. So what is Jesus doing when he quotes the very first line of Psalm 22? He's telling his students, read Psalm 22. Read this text. Because when you read it, here's what you find out. It tells you and me about crucifixion 400 years before it was invented. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, disciples, listen to me carefully. What's happening right now, it might be blowing you apart. You may be thinking that I have lost everything. Listen, this has been the plan from before the foundation of the world. Go read Psalm 22. This is all part of the perfect plan of redemption for you. That's what he was doing. And there are some parts in there. Read the whole Psalm. It's unbelievable. But I just want to read the first couple verses of it for you because there's a little text in there that gives us what I think is being talked about in Colossians 2.15. Let me just read the first 13 verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day, but you do not answer. And I cry by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The high priest quoted this at Jesus on the cross. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast for my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And here's the text that's fascinating. fascinating. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Like what in the world is that? Have you ever seen bulls like gather around gaping at someone? Mm -mm. Have you ever seen bulls like a ravening and roaring lion? No. What's being said right here? Here's what's being said. The Bible uses these big contrasts. Sometimes it's cities. There's a city of God, it's Jerusalem. Light, life, love, going out to the nations. Look what happens when you follow Yahweh. Good stuff. And then there's a really evil city in the Old Testament. It's called Babylon. It's a place where evil takes place all the way from Genesis 11 to Revelation 18. It's the bad city. And it compares those contrasts. It may be like North Korea versus New Zealand, right? Like compare and contrast, good versus evil. And it does it also with a mountain. Mount Sinai is God's mountain. And then Mount Bashan is the evil mountain. Read Psalm 68. It's where King Og, who was a descendant of the Rephaim, which is a uh, Genesis 6 reference to really evil stuff that was happening. Child sacrifice took place up there. It was an evil spot. It's up by Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 says, speaks to his disciples and says, who do you guys think I am? And they have these ideas. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, good answer. God showed you this. And on that confession, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, the setting there in this Bashan region is the temple of the God Pan, the goat God. Leviticus 17, 7 talks about it, really bad character. And the temple, to Pan, was built right over this crack in the earth that they called the gate of hell. And in that region, terrible, terrible things took place. So Bashan in scripture is the place of really bad stuff. So what is Psalm 22 talking about? Who are the bulls of Bashan? Gaping, leering, like roaring lions at Jesus on the cross. It's given us a little glimpse into the spirit realm. What was happening on the cross? Not just physical death. There was a massive spiritual battle taking place right then. It's why Paul puts it like this. 2 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers, we've looked at that word, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The spirit realm, the bulls of Bashan, demonic powers, when Jesus was being crucified, believed we won. We killed God. We won. But what happened? The opposite. Judo theology. Jesus took what they meant for evil and turns it for good like he always does. He triumphs. He has victory over them. That's what happens. Matt, if Jesus had victory, why is the world still so evil? What's like this? In World War II, there was a battle, the Battle of Normandy. That was the decisive battle of World War II. From that point on, historians say it was inevitable that the allied forces would win. But it took another 18 months, the most brutal bloody, deadly 18 months of World War II to actually finish the job. Our Normandy was the cross. We're in mop-up now. There's casualties, there's evil, but the win is inevitable. Jesus has triumphed, put them to an open shame. And right now, you and me, listen, we don't have to listen to his lies anymore. Keep reading verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. Satan can't pass judgment. He has nothing, whatever he had, whatever sin, whatever error, whatever stupid thing I've done, all the lies that he wants to speak to you and me. You had an abortion. You had sex before you were married. You blew it. You're divorced. All those, guess what? Nailed to the cross and forgiven. He is powerless. No judgment. On top of that, listen, the demonic realm has no power anymore. Just lies, just smoke, just deceit. And I've shared this before. A couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, I was driving home and a neighbor came and just waved me down. And I just left church, I'm coming home. And he's like, hey, 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 stop. And I stopped and said, what's going on? And he said, this young neighborhood boy, he's like 17 years old, he's coming after me, trying to kill me with a splitting mall." And he said, I don't know what to do. I said, call 911. That's what you should do. He's like, but you're here. I thought you could go talk to him. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know, man. That feels like outside of my realm. And right when I was talking to him, guess what I remembered? Wait, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. I said, okay. So I pulled in, got out of my truck, said his name. He came out, had the act still, put it down. And then started a three and a half hour conversation where this young man said at 14, he actually lived way down South. He said, when he was 14, he started getting bullied, started smoking pot, started doing some bad stuff. And he said, there was a presence that came into his life, made him these promises, started talking to him, leading him, directing him. I said, is he talking to you right now? He said, he is. He described what he looked like. I said, what is he saying to you right now? And he said, he's telling me to get far away from you. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to get far away from it. And man, it was the most brilliant, amazing thing. Went from this tense, just where you can, have you ever ever felt the spirit realm? Where you can just feel the spirit realm? To He grabbed all of his like, just stuff that he did drugs with. Got them all from his room. I didn't tell him to do that. He just said, I want to get rid of this. Took it out back, crushed it, broke it, burned it. And there was such a peace past all understanding. You know why I was able to do that? Because I'm in Christ and he's my warrior king. And when I'm in him, and the enemy has no power over us. That's the truth that Paul's getting at right here. You stand behind your warrior king and you don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about the lies of the enemy. All that stuff was nailed to the cross. When the enemy starts to accuse you of old stuff that you've done, of sinful stuff you've done, you say, yeah, I know, but it was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago and you have been disarmed. You have no power over me. That's the brilliance of being in Christ Jesus. He's your warrior king. You stand behind him and you have no fear.